Well, today we're going to start a new series from the books of First and Second Timothy. I've entitled this series, Blueprints for a Thriving Church. These two books are actually letters from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. They're part of what's called the Pastoral Epistles, which also includes Paul's letter to Titus. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters or epistles that were preserved and collected through the provision of the Holy Spirit for us in our Bibles. Nine of his letters were written to churches in specific areas, to, to believers in those towns like Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi. One was written to an individual called Philemon, who was a fellow laborer in the Colossian church, and Paul wrote to him to help him deal with his returning servant, um, Onesimus. And then three letters were written to two pastors, to Timothy and to Titus, hence they're called the pastoral epistles. Paul was writing to them to teach them how to run and organize a local church. This is why I titled our series Blueprints for a Thriving Church, because we're going to learn from Paul and his teaching to Timothy important biblical ways that we should organize and run our church. The key verses in 1 Timothy are 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. They directly tell us why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, and thus they tell us what we should expect to learn and apply in our lives as we study this letter. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. See, Paul was writing to Timothy to teach him how things ought to go in the local church. What are some of the things that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks? One of the things that Paul emphasizes very strongly to Timothy is to beware of false teaching and false teachers, and thusly to proclaim and to teach and to live out the truth. We'll be looking at the differing roles in a church, including the biblical qualifications for a pastor and for a deacon. And there are detailed instructions on various church ministries to differing groups within the church, like to widows and servants and the wealthy. The great expositor of Scripture, Warren Wiersbe, outlined 1 Timothy this way. He said it's about the church and its message in chapter 1. The church and its members in chapters 2 and 3. The church and its minister in chapter 4. And the church and its ministries in chapters 5 and 6. I think this is going to be an exciting study in God's word that will help our church, each one of us, grow and flourish. Well, what we all must do, individually and corporately, is always submit our wants and wills to the truth of God's word. It is when we do that, when we humbly live out God's word in our daily lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, that not only do we just live, but we thrive. I don't want to go to a good church. I want to be part of a thriving church, a church that's on fire for Jesus Christ, teaching and applying and living God's word day in and day out in our daily lives. So as we begin our study, let's humbly come before God's throne and ask him to lead us and guide us. So, Father, we come to you now. We come before your throne. We come anticipating to be taught by your Spirit 
through your spirit, by your word. May it be so. There are so many things in our lives where we need to grow and change and mature. Challenge us in those things. We, we don't desire to stay in the same place that we came into this room with. We desire to change and to grow. So challenge us and move us to do that. Lord, comfort us and encourage us and come alongside of us through your word as well. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, if you haven't already. And I just want to read the very beginning there, the first two verses there, the greeting, the opening there of 1 Timothy. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, today I want to organize our thoughts around the two main characters of this letter, the Apostle Paul, the author, and Timothy, the recipient of the letter. Paul, an apostle. First of all, the opening of the letter is done in the typical custom of the day. They always started with, who is writing? Then they would say to whom they are writing to, and then would come the greeting. Our typical custom is completely different of writing a personal letter to someone. First, we start off with the recipient to whom we are writing. And then, a simple greeting. And then comes the whole letter. We write the whole thing out. And then finally, at the very end, after the salutation, we finally put our name down on, as the author of that letter. If the letter doesn't come in an envelope with a return address on it, we have to turn to the last page to figure out who wrote it. We put it last, they put it first. So every one of Paul's letter, every single one of them, all 13 of them start off with the very exact same word, Paul. Because Paul is writing these letters. So who is this guy? He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Who is Paul? We're going to have a little interaction today. We're going to work like a little classroom, a little bit, a little pop quiz. I'm going to ask them questions and then give some commentary and thoughts about them. So, so if you have the answer, speak it right out. Here's our first question. What city was Paul from? Tarsus. Exactly right. You have all these wonderful maps in the back of your Bibles. And they're actually useful for things, incredibly helpful for things. You can find Tarsus. Tarsus is on Asia Minor, as the Bible would call it. It's on Turkey, as we would call it, on the Mediterranean Sea. So if you want to take a moment and look back there and see where Tarsus is, you can see where Paul was from. It's an important seaport city on the Mediterranean Sea. It's the capital of the Roman province of Sicilia. It was in Tarsus where Mark Anthony and Cleopatra met for the very first time. Paul says in Acts uh, 21:39, in response to a question, he says, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. Now, Paul grew up in a very Greek, very Roman town. He was surrounded by Gentiles, and he learned at an early age how to interact cross-culturally. The basic training and experience he had would provide invaluable uh, to him when he began his missionary journeys to the Gentiles. 
See, Paul had Roman citizenship, which became very important and very valuable to him as he was imprisoned and persecuted by Rome for his faith. Now, to have Roman citizenship and to not be Roman was not completely uncommon. But how Paul received his citizenship, we don't know. Perhaps his father or grandfather gave a large gift to the regional governor. Perhaps someone in his family became part of the Roman military, or perhaps they helped the military and was granted citizenship as a thank you. Those are two typical ways uh, that you would get citizenship as a uh, non-Roman person. Or perhaps his family had a direct line through the male side of his family. They already lived in Tarsus in 66 B.C., when Rome officially made Tarsus the capital of Sicilia and gave the inhabitants of Tarsus Roman citizenship. In Acts 22:22 and following, when Paul is getting ready to be whipped by a Roman centurion, he tells that Roman centurion that he is a Roman citizen and beating him without a trial was illegal. Then in Acts 22:27 and 29, it says, So the Roman tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul says, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he had realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. We don't know how he got his citizenship, but we do know that God wanted Paul to have it. And we know that became critically important status for Paul to have to complete his God-ordained missionary work. We also know that Paul went to Jerusalem for his formal education and and training in Judaism under the great Pharisee uh, teacher Gamaliel, becoming a Pharisee himself and a leader in the Jewish community in Jerusalem. Paul calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. So just a simple point of application here. Sometimes it might be easy for us to overlook some of the basic training or life experiences that we have. But we must realize that God gave them to us to equip us to serve him in our own unique way. You know, what life experiences do you have? Good ones, bad ones. Success, failure, starts and stops. What training or education do you have? Not just formal training, but what skills and abilities and talents do you have? God has put together a unique package of life just for you so that you can use all of this that he has given to you together for him. God has put your life together uniquely for you. So that you can use all your life experiences, all your training, skills, abilities, all the hardships of the past, all the blessings of the past. You can mix it all together and use it for him. How are you using your life experiences to serve God? Okay, okay, on to our next question. What was the name Paul used before his conversion to Christ? Saul, exactly right. When we're first introduced... To the Apostle Paul at the end of Acts chapter 7, his name is Saul. He's called Saul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Although it's popularly assumed that he changed his name when he converted from Judaism to Christianity, 
That's probably not the case. His Jewish name was Saul, or Shaul. Perhaps he was named after the biblical king Saul, who was a, a, a same like him from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was the first king of Israel. As a Roman citizen, he was probably also given the name Paul. More formally, he would have been called Paulus. It was, it was not unusual for the Jews at that time to have two names, one Hebrew name and the other Latin or Greek name. So in Acts 13, at the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey to the Gentiles, he starts using his Latin name, Paul. All right, next question. What was Paul doing before his conversion to Christ? What was Paul doing before he was converted to Christ? He was persecuting Christians. That's exactly right. Paul was so committed to the ways of Judaism, he was such a devout Pharisee that he was one of the leaders in persecuting the early church. As a matter of fact, he was there supporting the crowd when the very first Christian was martyred for his faith. Who was that first Christian that was martyred for his faith? What's his name? Stephen, exactly right there in Acts chapter 7. It says in verse 58, it says, Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Then chapter 8 starts with these powerful words. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, Paul was one of the leaders ravaging the church, persecuting the followers of Christ. That is, until he met Jesus. Next question. Where was Paul? Where was he going when his life changed when he came face to face with Jesus? Damascus, right? He was on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9 records that. It says there at the beginning of chapter 9, But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus, so that he found, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The great persecutor of the church, ravaging the church, bringing out the men and the women and putting them into prison, hunting down the believers, the followers, the disciples, the great persecutor of the church, became a fully sold-out, devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? Isn't that awesome? From day one, he was on a new mission. His mission was to let everyone know that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. 
Now, with all of his life experiences, being raised in this Gentile city, having Roman citizenship, being trained as a Pharisee, God had prepared him to take the gospel to the Gentile world. In Galatians 1, 15 and 16, Paul is giving his testimony of his conversion and his calling when he says, But when God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. From the very beginning, of uh, Paul knew that God had called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And as a Gentile, I say, I am so thankful. We are so thankful for God's plan and for Paul's obedience. It is because of the outworking of this plan that we know the salvation of our souls through Jesus Christ. The author and finisher of our faith is Jesus Christ. But if our salvation could be traced back to the very first human origin, it would be the gospel preaching of the Apostle Paul. How awesome is that? All right, here's another question. How many recorded missionary journeys of Paul do we have in the book of Acts? How many missionary journeys? Three, exactly right. There are three. Now, did you hear my question right? I hope you heard it. You see, the book of Acts doesn't end with Paul's death. It records three missionary journeys, but it ends, the book of Acts ends with him imprisoned in Rome. You see, the end of the book of Acts is not the end of Paul. Paul was released from that imprisonment and sentence and did additional missionary journeys. Actually, the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus were written after the book of Acts ends. Second Timothy is written when Paul is again imprisoned in Rome. It is Paul's last letter which he penned shortly before being beheaded in Rome by Emperor Nero. Paul had many companions on his missionary journeys like Barnabas and Mark and Luke and Silas and Timothy. See, Paul's first missionary journey was with Barnabas and for a short time with Mark. He started off his second missionary journey with Silas as his partner and then soon added Timothy to his traveling team. Luke was also a companion at times with Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. Actually, if you read closely Paul's letter, you'll find out there's a whole team of people, men and women, who travel with Paul, supporting him and helping him get out the gospel message. In our passage today, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, it says that Paul was an apostle of Christ by the command of God. Paul often describes his calling as an apostle by the will of God, or he'll describe it as a calling of God. But this time he described it as a command of God. See, Paul was so in touch, he was so confident in God's calling in his life, that to Paul it was a clear command of God in his life. For Paul not to give his life in service to Christ would have been disobeying God. How about you? you know, what is God commanding you to do in your life? What is God impressing upon you and saying, this is what I want you to do? Are you doing that? Well, now let's turn our focus to one of the companions of Paul, perhaps his closest friend and co-laborer and ministry apprentice, Timothy. Timothy was a true son of Paul. How close were Paul and Timothy? Nine 
of, the, of Paul's 13 letters mention Timothy. Timothy is mentioned in six of the letters as being a co-author with Paul. 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Two of the letters were written about Timothy, to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul sends Timothy to Corinth to remind them of the ways of Christ and what Paul had taught them. Timothy plays a prominent role in nine of the 13 letters of Paul. See, Timothy ministered in Corinth, at Ephesus, at Philippi, throughout Macedonia, and in Greece, and Thessalonica, and Jerusalem, and in Rome. And these are just the places that we know about. You see, Timothy is one of the most important leaders of the early church. You have the apostles, Peter, and Matthew, and John, and Paul, and others. Then you have that next tier of leaders, like James, the brother of Jesus, Luke, and Mark, and Timothy. Timothy is one of the founders, one of the heroes of our faith. It was on Paul's first missionary journey that he preached in Timothy's hometown of Lystra. Paul's ministry in Lystra and the surrounding area and the major persecution that he faced is recorded for us there in Acts chapter 14. It seems as though Timothy was converted uh, to Christ from Paul's first missionary journey there because Paul describes Timothy as his beloved and faithful son in the Lord. In 1 Timothy 1-2, we saw that he called Timothy my true child or my true son in the faith. In 2 Timothy 1-2, he addresses Timothy as my beloved child. Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. Through Paul, Timothy became a follower of Christ. Do you remember your spiritual father? Do you remember your spiritual parent? The person who helped lead you to Christ? Have you been a spiritual father, a spiritual parent to someone else? Can you see that that you have children in the faith Because God has used you to bring them to salvation. But see, one of the unique things we know about Timothy from the scriptures is that it wasn't just Paul whom God used to bring him to faith. It often takes many people sowing and watering and the seed of God's word in life before it begins to grow and and mature. You know, being a spiritual parent doesn't mean you're the one who led them across at that last moment in a prayer to give their life to Jesus Christ. Being a spiritual parent means that you're being used of God as part of the process, the sowing, the watering of faith in a person's life. The other great influences in Timothy's life were his mom and his grandmother. And the Bible even gives us their names. 2 Timothy 1.5 says, I remind you of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Timothy's mother, Eunice, his grandmother Lois, God used them in amazing ways in Timothy's life, this great founder and leader of our faith. They, they came to Christ first. They were instrumental in Timothy, not only coming to know Christ, but then to grow strong and wise in the faith. 
Paul challenges Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, saying, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy knew the Bible from childhood. He knew the Old Testament. His mom and grandmother taught it to him, and they lived it out before him. They also lived out their devotion to Jesus Christ in powerful and demonstrable ways. So much so, think about this now, that when Paul shows up again in Lystra on his second missionary journey, this young man, Timothy, is trained. He's trained and he's already busy serving the Lord with his life. We don't know how old Timothy was at this time, but many have speculated that he was a teenager. Partly because when the persecution comes to them shortly after uh, Timothy joins the second missionary journey in Philippi, he's not in prison. Only Paul and Silas are in prison. Perhaps because he was too young for prison. So let's say a positive word this morning about the dedication and commitment of teenagers. See, it's often in our teen years where God calls us in amazing ways to serve him. There's something about the optimism and the energy of those teen years that God can just grab and change the course of a person's life forever. I stand up here in front of you as an example of that truth. It was a summer between my sophomore and junior year in high school that I committed my life to Christ and to full-time, lifetime service to him. And so many of my pastor friends can share similar stories. So teenager, young adult out there, listen to me this morning. God used Timothy to light the world on fire for him. And God wants to use you. Now some of you will get great jobs and get married and Serve God faithfully in his church, and that's awesome. Any pastor, every pastor is excited about that. But some of you today that are hearing my voice might also be hearing another voice. The voice of God calling your life. Don't shut out that voice. Listen to God. Take the risk of your life and commit your life to follow Christ full-time for a lifetime, I can guarantee you that your pastor and your church will do whatever it takes to support you in your calling. You know there's that marine recruitment billboard sign on 224 that says, we don't accept applications, only commitments. It's a young adult. Be a Timothy. Don't just try to skim by in your Christian life. Be committed. Be committed to do and to be all that God wants you to be. This teenage boy, this on-fire, faith-grounded teenage boy became an apprentice of the Apostle Paul and literally changed the course of history. Acts 16 starts off as, as Paul starts his second missionary journey. It says, Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul shows up in Lystra on this second missionary journey. He finds Timothy. He's described as a disciple. 
A fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple is. A fully committed follower. Sold out, 100%, all in, follower of Jesus Christ. And Timothy already has this great reputation because he's already serving Christ, not only in his own community in Lystra, but also in a neighboring town of Iconium as well. But it also mentions here uh, Timothy's dad. Timothy's dad was a non-believing Greek Gentile. One of the first things that Paul does with Timothy there in Acts chapter 16 before taking him along on his missionary journey is to have Timothy circumcised. See, Timothy is Jewish through his mother, so having him circumcised takes away any barrier for him to more effectively evangelize Jewish people. I think it's awesome. I think that's an awesome little tidbit of information because it shows the devotion of Paul and the devotion of Timothy to do whatever it takes to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the reason he probably wasn't already circumcised was probably because of his Gentile dad. He probably didn't allow it to happen. So let's say a positive word this morning about the influence of a godly mother. Let's say the positive word this morning about the influence of godly grandparents and what they can have on a child. Many a life has been set on fire by the flame of their mom or their grandparents. Mom, be encouraged this morning. Don't fall under the weight of a spouse that isn't following Christ. Be strong in Christ and keep on. Keep on modeling godliness. Keep on living and teaching and following the truth. Keep on bringing them to church. Keep on. Your influence can be just what God might use to bring them to Him. Grandparents, be encouraged. Don't fall under the weight of your child not following Christ and then give up on your grandkids. Be strong in Christ and keep on. Do whatever you can to be a godly influence on your children and your grandchildren. Teaching and modeling and living godliness. Your influence just might be what God uses to bring them to him and to launch the next Timothy into our world. If it was not if there was no godly mother, if there was no godly grandmother, there is no Timothy, one of the great heroes of our faith. And a note to all the dads out there, you have a very special role to play in your child's spiritual development. A very important role. It's time for us as dads to step up and lead. To step up and say, children, Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. Step up and be the first person wanting to go to church. Step up and be that leader in your home wanting to learn from the Bible. Step up and be that example to your kids of a man who is a disciple, a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Step up and lead. What does the beginning of 1 Timothy teach us? That Paul had Timothy. Timothy had Paul. It's called the Clarence Principle. Now, Clarence is a hardware salesman. I found this story about Clarence, the hardware salesman. It goes like this. When I was a kid, Saturday mornings were a chore. Often my dad would say, come on, kid, and I'd hop in the station wagon, and we'd drive down the street to Hooper Wolf's hardware store, 
Cooper Wolf had an old uh, wood door painted white, except where the paint was worn off by the door handle. You walked in and you could hardly move. There were two narrow aisles where the counters were filled with merchandise. Shelves were overflowing. Stuff was hanging from the ceilings. You'd think, no way am I going to find anything in here. But you didn't need to. As soon as you walked in, there was Clarence behind the counter. And he would say, help you today? My dad would say something like, I want to hang a a light out back. Clarence would come out from behind the counter and ask some questions. Uh, Where are you going to hang it? Over the patio? Well, then he would start rummaging through shelves and he'd pull out just the right light. You want a light like this. And don't use these bolts here, but they're only good for indoor stuff. But use these outdoor ones here. They're, They're galvanized. Your wall is brick, isn't it, Clarence would say. Even though our town was small, I was impressed that he knew what our house was made of. Well, to run the conduit through there, you want a masonry bit that's three-fourths of an inch. And if we don't have it in stock, you can go down to Miller's Lumberyard. They have it in stock. Then Clarence would pull that fat carpenter pencil right out from behind his ear and get out a little piece of paper and sketch it out. See, the conduit goes here, and you make sure that you don't mount the light too close to the soffit. Today, the author says, when I have a project on Saturday, I I run to Home Depot. Unlike Hooper Wolf's, where you had to parallel park on the street, there's an ocean of parking. And inside, Home Depot is huge. The ceilings are 30 feet high. And Home Depot has 40 times the inventory of Hooper Wolf's. It all looks great under those bright and beautiful argon lights. There's a guy in an orange apron like a block away. And if you run him down, he's likely to say, sorry, I usually work in paint. I'm just covering electrical because someone was sick. So you're pretty much on your own. A similar thing has happened in the American church. We have programs that are amazing with quality and technical sophistication. But something's missing. Someone is missing. Clarence is missing. We all need a Clarence. We all need to know someone and to be in a relationship with someone who knows more than we do and will help us, guide us, and direct us to grow in Christ. Throughout the Bible, this is the primary way that faith has been passed on. Moses trains Joshua. Eli trains Samuel. Jesus to the apostles, Timothy, from his grandmother Lois, from his mother Eunice, and from Paul, his son in the faith Timothy was. When it comes to helping people grow into spiritual maturity, the Bible gives us the Clarence principle. The older teach the younger. Those more mature in the faith guide those who are newer in the faith. Now I'm pleased to announce to you that there are many Clarences and many clarines in this room this morning. If you're a spiritually mature believer, if you've been traveling life's road with Christ for decades, then you are a clarence. You're a clarine. And you need to be living out the clarence principle. Paul had Timothy. You need to be teaching the younger, the new in the faith, about how best to live life with putting Jesus and his word as the highest priority of your life. If you're a spiritually mature believer, 
and you are not mentoring, then there's a Timothy or there's a Tina that is missing out on God's best right now. And if you're in need of spiritual mentoring, if you're a Timothy or a Tina, no matter what your age might be, if you're in need of spiritual mentoring, then pursue it. Don't sit idly by. Go for it. Ask to spend time with someone who's more spiritually mature, a friend of yours, to specifically talk about spiritual things. Pursue them. The spiritual impact of the Apostle Paul falls woefully short if he doesn't have Timothy. And Timothy would have never reached his spiritual potential if it were not for Paul. Oh, how our church needs Paul's to stand up and mentor. How our church needs Timothy's to reach out for guidance and to grow the power and the importance of the Clarence Principle. May it ever be so. Poland Village Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for these two simple verses that challenge us in amazing ways. Lord, Paul had Timothy. Timothy had Paul. In many ways, each one of us can be a Paul. And in many ways, each one of us are in need like Timothy. Lord, bind us together as a church body across generations and and uh, man-to-man and woman-to-woman in amazing, deep, relational, significant ways. So that as Clarence guided that man in ways he didn't know, that we can be guided in spiritual ways that we don't know. So we can become mature believers standing strong for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.